study of Matthew 19 where Jesus is asked about divorce and he responds talking about divorce and marriage. Uh, we were following up with that on a broader level, looking at Scripture, what Scripture says about marriage, and really working toward um, using some biblical principles, some biblical common sense principles on how to have a strong marriage, slash how to avoid a divorce. And so we looked at the first three this morning. The first one had to do with loving God. Um, the second one had to do with being godly. The third one had to do with knowing what your role is in marriage and actually pursuing that. At least that's the best my memory can do. And this, this evening we'll do number four, and that is prioritize the husband-wife relationship. Ten biblically informed, common-sense ways to avoid a divorce. Number four, prioritize the husband-wife relationship. And there are, there are ways in which that husband-wife relationship um, can be compromised. And, and through being totally consumed with your children, it can be compromised. That's one way. And stop and think about it for a moment. You think about your children and you think about how much you love them and how much time they take and, and how you are supposed to love them and care for them. And forget about what my outline point was and answer this question. What is your number one human relationship on planet Earth supposed to be? Well, sometimes we act as if it's our parent-child relationship. And I would submit to you that I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Now, please, let's look for some sanctified balance. I don't want anybody to take that out of context and run with it to, to a, a bad degree. But if we go back to Matthew 19, where all of this study started, you see a tremendous emphasis upon husband-wife to the point that when a new husband-wife relationship starts, there's a breakup of the family. The priority and the emphasis is upon the husband and the wife. He who created them from the very beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one flesh. And you get the idea, this is going to keep happening. There is a breakup of the family, a sanctified breakup of the family, to start a new family between who? Husband and wife you do see this emphasis in Scripture. Husband and wife have a, have a prioritized relationship. And you can just look at common sense as well and think that in, in our culture at least, usually, uh, or in our culture, children are considered adults at, at age 18. And uh, so they might be in the house till 18, maybe longer than that. But typically it's going to be around that age and they're going to be out of the house. Well, I don't have to be a mathematician to figure out that I'm going to be with my wife for more years than I'm going to be with my kids, Lord willing. Maybe not much longer if I die at 55 like my dad did, but never mind, that's a bad illustration. But the idea would be, my, my kids are going to be out of the house, Lord willing, someday. And, and I might just live long enough to experience what that's like. But you, just, just think about it. You're going to pour your whole life into your kids. Common sense is at the expense of your marriage relationship, you, you have a bit of a problem on your hands. And so even common sense would call for us to stop and say, wait a minute. Um, maybe I shouldn't be putting all of my eggs in that basket. Yes, children are a priority. Yes, they're a blessing from God. They're a gift from God. Yes, they require a ton. Please give them that attention. Please invest your life into them. You're supposed to be training them. So am I. I think if you spied on my family, please don't. You'd figure out that we really love our kids and we spend a lot of time with our kids and you spend a lot of money on your kids and you do all these things trying to aim them in the right direction. But what we don't want to do is do that at the expense of husband-wife relationship. We don't want to do that. And I'll tell you what, to pull that off, you've got to be countercultural. 
I think, because everything is driven toward having absolutely everything for the kids all the time. It seems to be. An illustration, a case in point would, uh, of this being a problem that's even a growing problem in our culture would be when I was a college pastor at UNL, I remember one time uh, we'd have these mandatory meetings with the different campus ministries that you'd have to go to um, if you wanted to be a campus ministry at UNL. And so we would grin and bear it and endure it and uh, go there. And uh, I remember one time the dean came. And the dean came, and you know, he has to be politically correct and talk to all of us. But, but his message to us was, thank you for doing this this ministry you do that's so diverse and everything. But thank you all because we're, we're really struggling with even how to help freshmen because there's a growing number, a rapidly growing number of freshman students who when they come to college, especially if they're the, when they come, when they go off to college and they, they come here, that mom and dad get a divorce. And even the dean of the university, best I can remember, is connecting the dots saying the parents have given their life to their children and that's what's held the whole thing together. And now they don't have really anything in common. And so they have a good reason to break up. Now, maybe he didn't connect the dots quite like we would connect the dots. But here they are saying, well, they had one message for us, and that's thank you for doing what you do, helping specifically our freshmen who are really having a hard time because there are so many divorces and even giving this as a reason. I think if you look at the Bible, you see that there is a tremendous priority placed upon husbands and wives and children. But we want our children to be welcome additions to the family. Not running the show and having the, the whole deal be all about them. And they would love to do that, wouldn't they? <laughs> what we want to do is actively invest in our relationship with our husband and our wife. Now, what that looks like for you and what it looks like for me are probably different. It's probably different. The Bible doesn't say it, and here's how you do that. For the Abendroths, that means things like getting away now and then without the kids. <laughs> for the Abendroths, that means date nights, not as often as we would like them. <laughs> for the Abendroths, that means doing some ministry together, though we can't do all ministry together, but it's nice when we get to do ministry together because we have something in common that we can maintain and keep in common even after the kids are gone. For the Abendroths, this means having some like interests, maintaining those. Uh, it means practical things like having a set bedtime for the kids that's before our bedtime. And being able to spend time together. It, it means talking about the future and what, Lord willing, we would like to do someday in the future if we live long enough to have the kids move out of the house. It means enjoying each other's company. It means being friends. These are just common sense things. I can't give you chapter and verse. And when our kids open up their mouths and say, that's not fair, you guys are going on a trip. Well, our kids by now know that that's not a good thing to say. I can, you know, just smile and be silent. And the wheels are turning, you know, the older ones. Fair? What's fair? Fair is we never go on a family vacation, you know? I mean, what's the big deal? Uh, or I, I like one, the one the barbers told us the other day when we went on a trip with them. They told their kids, well, well you know. We didn't go to these places when we were kids either. Oh, that was pretty good. I'm going to add that to my repertoire. <laughs> Make sure you're investing in your marriage relationship. Not to the neglect of your kids, but so that it's a priority. Friends are another one that, that can get in the way, and I don't want to elaborate too much. 
But again, we love friends, and, and I've been saying more and more because it's true, my best friends are low-maintenance friends <laughs> because you're so busy with marriage and life and everything that if it's high-maintenance, you won't stay friends very long because they're going to be offended at you. But anyway, uh, that's for free. <laughs> but we love friends, and we love hanging out with other people, and I like my guy friends, and Molly likes her girlfriends, and we like hanging out with couple friends, but we still have to carve out that time. We just do stuff alone because we're a husband and a wife. We're not clinging to other people. And so that's just another common sense kind of thing. I have to be careful. I'm glad I don't have a wife who nags me because I happen to go do something with the guys. But I have to remember that I, I can get out of balance with that. And she's my number one priority. And, and, and she wants to go uh, do something with the girls. And I, I, hopefully she's thankful I don't nag her about it. That's fine. Go ahead. I want friends that are a blessing from God. The Bible would talk about friendship. Go for it. But... It's got to come back to, we don't want to have everything based upon that. I could talk about work, but I won't do that. Let's move on to number five. Fifth, biblically informed, common sense way to avoid a divorce is to choose wisely if you're single. Choose wisely if you're single. Number one, are they a believer? To the best you can tell. To the best you can tell, is this person a believer? I mean, it's just 2 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about being uh, not being unequally yoked, which would apply to lots of things, spiritual endeavors, but marriage would be a spiritual endeavor. You're not, you're not supposed to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. You're setting yourself up for a disaster. You start out your relationship by sinning, because it would be sin, because you're disobeying a command from God. So you want to start by saying, all right, are they a believer? And my question for you, what is a believer? What are the marks of a believer? You better figure that out. A believer is not somebody who said the sinner's prayer. You don't even find that in the Bible anywhere. What is a believer? Well, you should know what a believer is and what the marks of a believer are if you've been coming to this church for about three weeks. So make sure you you think through that ahead of time, unless you just want to set yourself up. What about their character? I'm going to I'm going to try to choose wisely. I want to look at their character. Here are some good probing character questions. Who are their friends? Who are their friends? 1 Corinthians 15.33, great passage to memorize. Do not be deceived. I love it when the Bible says that because it waves that red flag that says, there's a good possibility you could be deceived. Do not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good what? Good morals. I want to know who this person's friends are because they're going to more than likely be like their friends. Another good question, how do they handle conflict? The Bible talks plenty about conflict, and it talks about how believers are supposed to deal with conflict. I want to watch that person and how they deal with conflict. Another good question, how do they treat their parents? What does the Bible say? You're supposed to honor your mother and father. That would apply even if the mother and father are unbelievers. You at least want to show them honor. I'm going to be watching. How do they treat children? Because more than likely, you're going to have some with that person someday. How do they treat little kids? We're supposed to love little kids. Treat them with kindness. What do your friends think of them? Better yet, what do godly people think of them? Another question about character. Are they passionate about godliness? Are they passionate about godliness? We talked about that this morning. That's just a definition in a sense of a believer doing the the most basic thing. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's what they're sold out to. I want to ask that question if I'm going to know their character. Are they serving is another question. Christians, by, by definition of being followers of Christ, the one who said, I didn't come to be served but to serve, Mark 10.45, Christians serve. 
Another question and I'll end. Are they someone you can follow slash lead depending on your gender? Why wouldn't you want to ask these questions? You know, in so many ways, I wish I could have our, our, our younger people who are single sit in on marriage counseling. Marriage counseling is ugly. It is. I'm not saying the people are ugly. I'm saying marriage counseling is ugly because usually you don't have marriage counseling unless there's a problem. I wish you could sit in and listen. I wish you could talk to people who have horrible regrets that they were stupid. Foolish is the nice biblical word. And they married an unbeliever. They married somebody who, who they really wanted to be a believer. It's just a mess. How about this? Make sure you know what you're looking for ahead of time before your emotions kick in. Be really wise. It would be a great way to avoid a divorce. Not too long ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who was younger in the faith and wanting to get married. And and we were talking about what to look for and all these kinds of things. And and I said, you know what you need to do? You need to look at, at the passages of the Bible, not only to talk about what it means to be a godly man, you need to look at the passages of the Bible that talk about what it means to be a godly woman. Not because I wanted him to be a godly woman. <laughs> I wanted him to know what a godly woman really was. You go to Titus chapter 2. You go to Proverbs 31. You go to Ephesians 5 for men and women. You go to the elder qualifications even because they're supposed to be examples of what all of us are really supposed to be seeking after. I mean, for that matter, if, if the Lord took, took Molly to heaven anytime soon... The Lord would know I would need to be married. <laughs> what would I do? I, I'd probably, you know, I wouldn't be allowed to come to the women's conference this weekend. But I'd go buy the Excellent Wife book. <laughs> and, and, and I'm just being silly. But I, I, I would want to think through, what does a godly woman look like? Because I need one. I need one before I meet someone that I might fall for emotionally. Or physically. I want to know. I want to choose wisely. I I could literally arrange it for you if you would like to meet someone and talk to someone who is miserable. To try to talk you out of being stupid, being foolish. Don't, please. I know some of you will. But please, I say, by the grace of God, be smart. Think. Use your brain. Number six, six biblically informed common sense way to avoid a divorce is to learn what marriage really is. We can do this one really fast. Learn what marriage really is. Matthew 19 told us what marriage really was. I love the context because, again, they asked Jesus about divorce and what does he do? Basically, he concludes in his omniscient mind, you guys don't understand marriage. And so in Matthew 19 and verse 4, he who created them from the beginning, that is the architect of marriage, who knew what he was doing, made them male and female, he made them compatible, men and women. From the very beginning, he designed for them to leave in verse 5 and to be united and to become one flesh from the very beginning, this all-knowing, wise God. And then verse 6 he designed it to be permanent. He, 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 he sanctified the union as one that's supposed to last a lifetime. And we looked at that in detail. Yeah, know, know what the Bible teaches about marriage ahead of time. We want to know that. We want to have that drilled in our minds. Nobody's supposed to separate it. 
I remember when a couple of friends of mine were courting. Their last name is Swift, in case you want a hint. <laughs> I just remember they're, they're talking about all this stuff. They showed wisdom. You know, I, I, knew, I knew something was getting serious when Todd's giving Laura John MacArthur tapes. <laughs> you know, And kind of keeping her at an arm's distance. And I think that was probably hard for him to do. But he's giving her these tapes and kind of like, what do you think of that? You know, we're, we're just going to talk about this stuff. And, and they got other things out of the way ahead of, before that. But they, what, what was happening there? They were talking about marriage before they got married. Even before, before they was very serious. It's good. That's a great example. They did it the right way. It's an excellent example. Sorry, Laura. I thought your husband would be here tonight. <laughs> you know what else we do at Omaha Bible Church in premarital counseling is we talk about divorce and we ask couples to talk about divorce. We, we ask them to listen to audio messages on divorce. Because you want to know what the Bible says ahead of time. You might as well just get it on the table. And I know people say divorce is a word we never use even. We never even mention the word. I understand that. But I would like to suggest from the very beginning, you better talk about it. Because you've got to know what God's will is about it. It just begs the question. Well, let's keep moving for sake of time, because some of these will take longer than others. Number seven, choose your friends wisely. We can do this one easily. We already looked at the bad company corrupts good morals. But I want, I want my friends to sharpen me as iron sharpens iron. I think it's Proverbs 27 that talks about that. I want that to happen. 27.14 But not only do I want friends who can sharpen me as iron sharpens iron, not only do I want friends who can help me to have good morals because they're godly people, uh, we, we want couples as friends who can help us. We're going to choose our couple friends wisely. Now that doesn't mean we only hang out with godly people. We hang out with other people sometimes because we want to help them. But we choose our friends wisely. I would encourage you to choose your friends wisely. You know the kind of friends we don't want? The kind of friends we don't keep very long? Or the kind of friends when we get together, the, the husband is bagging on the wife? I don't need that. You know the kind of friends we don't have? The kind of friends we don't keep? Is the kind of, the kind of friends who really aren't friends where the wife is, is bagging on the husband and nagging about the husband. And, and my wife is really good at it. You know, she's so sweet, you don't even know she's warming up the knife to get you with it. But... Typically, what you'll find my wife doing is changing the subject. And if you've experienced that, know that it was on purpose. (laughs) Or trying to do something to say, hey, you know what, let's talk about something else. Or saying something positive about her husband. Don't hang out with those kind of people. It's ugly. Don't do that. It's undermining the marriage. It's problematic. And hopefully it's helpful. Maybe you can get in that habit when that happens. You can change the conversation. You can change the topic. It doesn't help anybody. Those are the kind of friends we don't keep for very long. Yes, there's a place for helping the weak. But eventually you have to say, I need some strong, I need need a godly man and a godly woman that we can spend some time with, maybe that older couple, and we can just kind of watch. And that's happened at different times in our marriage where we've been to someone's house for dinner or something like that, and, and you leave and you just think, they're cool. We want to be like them. I think the only time ever in my life I've told Molly that I was attracted to another woman was a woman who was how old? In her 70s? I mean, it wasn't a risk. (laughs) 
these people, they lived in Lincoln, and, and uh, you know what, in that sense, I was attracted to the man. They were just, <clears throat> they were just cool. And they were just this kind of sophisticated, in a good sense, godly couple. And they treated each, treated each other properly and with respect. And, and they were just a classy kind of couple. And, and I thought, I really like that woman, and I can even tell my wife. We want friends like that. We want people like that. And how about let's reverse it. We want to be people like that to other people. Let's move on. Number eight. This is one of the most obvious ways to avoid a divorce, scripturally speaking. Don't fornicate. You asked me, could you be blunt? (laughs) I just was about as blunt as I could. Don't commit sexual sin. We have to mention that one because that's the one the Bible specifically mentions. Biblical grounds for divorce? Fornication. Uh, you don't want a divorce? Don't fornicate. That would be really, really a helpful start. I mean, that's, that's as clear as could be. Matthew 19.9 And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, pornea, fornication, and marries another woman, commits adultery. I've got to start there. And there's some things you should know about fornication that would be helpful. That's that broad word that is is inclusive of sexual sin. It includes adultery. It includes premarital sex. It includes, for that matter, bestiality. It includes any kind of, of sexual perversion. How about this? It includes anything and everything other than husband and wife sexual activity. Don't do that. Don't go down that road. You're setting yourself up for a disaster. Let me tell you some things about fornication that you really should know. How about this? And I'll just go fast. I realize we can't look up all of these, but for the sake of time. Hebrews 13.4 tells us very clearly that God judges fornicators. It says, for fornicators... Well, let me read the whole thing. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled or protected. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge... And so don't think for a second that, that extracurricular sexual activity is no big deal. God promises to judge it. And, and how about this? Don't wonder why your marriage is so screwed up if you're committing different kinds of sexual sin. God promised to judge. It's no wonder you're having problems in your marriage. Because you're looking at pornography on the internet. God promises to judge that. No wonder you have a disaster. No wonder you have a mess on your hands. It just, I mean, you're just, you're reaping what you sow, to use a biblical phrase. If, if your pattern of life now, those of you who aren't married, is sexual sin, fornication, whatever type, if that's the pattern of your life now, I'll tell you what, you're going to have a messed up marriage. Now, God forgives, and I understand that. You reap what you sow, though. You're going to wonder later on why you're having these marriage problems. I can tell you right now why you're having them. I can tell you right now why you're going to have them. Don't do it. Just know that whatever you throw into the wind is going to go blow back in your face. And I know I'm speaking bluntly, and, and, and maybe it's rubbing you the wrong way, but it's just the facts are the facts. You gotta deal with it. I mean, what this would be for me is, 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 is the major jerk on the chain saying, don't do that! And if you are, stop! Stop! Run the other way! 
Hosea 8.7, Galatians 6.7, you reap what you sow. And again, I, I wish I could take single people, even young single people. How about especially young single people? I wish I could take junior high kids and high school kids and have them sit in marriage counseling where couples have a totally messed up marriage and a totally messed up sex life. And you can't tell me that it had nothing to do with all of the sexual sin they were committing starting back in junior high and high school and college and after that. Just, how about this? You want to have a great sex life? Be pure. You want to have the best sex life you can have to the glory of God? Be pure. That's motivation. That is motivation. I'll be frank with you. Before I got married, I became a believer. That was motivation for me. That's biblical motivation. To fight sin. We're going to talk about that and say no to sin. Why? Because I want to do this God's way and I want it to be as great as it's supposed to be. So I don't want to fornicate. God says people who are characterized by sexual sin, fornication, are not Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do not be deceived. Fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you've got a major issue here. Major. I'm not saying this will be easy. This will be hard. This is countercultural. Our whole culture is set up for you to be a fornicator. It's all set up that way. That's how marketing works. You have to be countercultural. It's going to be hard. It's going to be so hard. How about this? Jesus says this in Matthew 5. If your right eye makes you stumble, talking about in the context of sexual sin, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You want to talk about going to extremes? Yeah! And I don't think he was talking about cutting body parts off because it never really would change the heart. But he is talking about you better go to radical extremes to not be a fornicator, whether you're married or not married. You're going to go to radical extremes to protect that purity or whatever semblance of purity is left for some of you. You're going to protect it. What are you going to do? Well, for me, I'm going to memorize Scripture. There are scriptures I memorized in college that as a new believer I still know today and still call upon today. I'm going to meditate upon scripture. How can a young man keep his way pure? He can do so, uh, elaborating on what he says in, in Psalm 19, uh, by keeping according to God's ways. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, my paraphrase, I'm going to meditate upon God's ways. I'm going to fill my mind with the truth. I'm going to meditate on the truth. I'm going to memorize the truth. I'm going to keep garbage out of my mind. There are certain movies I will not watch. There are certain things I will not read. There are certain places I will not go. There are certain lunches I will not have. In other words, how about this? I have a plan. I have a plan for, for keeping myself from being a fornicator. Why? Because I love God and I love my wife. Paul knew about the extreme. How about 1 Corinthians 9.27? But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I, that's a reality for me. Radical extremes so that I don't disqualify myself. 
Romans 13, 14, one I did memorize. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. I'm putting on Christ by thinking His thoughts after Him, by meditating on His Word and memorizing His Word. I'm actively putting on the Lord Jesus Christ because I love God and I love my wife and I love the family that God has given me, given me so I'm going to be radical and go to radical extremes. And if this isn't for you, then something is wrong with you spiritually. Because again, what are we supposed to do as believers? Basic baby believers. We love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. This just fits with that. A good place to transition to the positive. Number nine, prioritize a biblical sex life if you're married. Prioritize a biblical sex life if you are married. And some of you say, a biblical sex life? Yeah. A biblical sex life. We don't have time for all the details. Let me give you the skeleton, some vital components to a biblical sex life. A biblical sex life is reserved for husband and wife. Hebrews 13.4, the marriage bed is to be kept. It is to be protected. It is to be kept undefiled. Protected. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Marriage bed, husband and wife, only husband and wife. Guard that. It's sacred. Another component, a biblical sex life sees sex as a good gift from God. Genesis one thirty one. Sex should be seen by you as a good gift from God. God creates everything, including sexual beings, including after telling them to be fruitful and multiply. And what does He say? Does He say, and I've said this many times, does He say it is good? No. He says what? It is very good. Huh. How should we view sex? We should view it as very good and a gift from God. You say, but what about the abuses, Pastor? They're tragic. They're all the more tragic because God designed it to be good. But you can apply the same thing to relationships, the same thing to food. You can apply the same thing to wine. Just because there are abuses doesn't make something inherently wrong. That's called asceticism, by the way, when you say that things that are physical are not for the spiritual. Asceticism is is countered and rejected in the book of Colossians. God made us spiritual beings, yes, who have the ability to enjoy physical things. He's given it to us to be viewed as good. Read the Song of Solomon sometime that elevates even romantic sexual love. Another good component of biblical sex life keeps pleasure in perspective. Keeps pleasure in perspective. And what all I want to say is there's a place for pleasure in the Christian life. Read Song of Solomon. Tell me there's no pleasure there, and I'll say you are a liar. There are some people who didn't want Song of Solomon in the Bible because they thought it was inappropriate, probably with those ascetic tendencies of thinking, no, no, you can't talk about this, and enjoying pleasure. That's, that's ascetic in, in, in bent. There's a place for it. Your, your worldview needs to have a place for pleasure. If your worldview has no place for pleasure, you're choosing and picking and choosing in the Bible what you want and what you don't want. Pleasure is good. Pleasure that causes you to step over the line and sin, sin is bad. A biblical worldview sees a place for physical pleasure. 
Another component of biblical sex life prioritizes sexual activity. 1 Corinthians 7. Why don't you go ahead and turn there? It prioritizes sexual activity. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Are we really on number 9? All right. What we will see, and we are seeing even with Song of Solomon and 1 Corinthians 7, is God didn't give sex only for procreation. He did give sex for procreation, no doubt. But to limit your view of sex as only for procreation is, again, to, to, to edit God. It is for pleasure, by design, from God. Song of Solomon would argue for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 would prioritize sexual activity. The husband, verse 3, must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. We'll get to the next verse in a moment, I believe. But let's go to verse 5. Stop depriving one another. There's some asceticism creeping into the Corinthian church. Except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Couldn't be clearer. The Corinthians apparently are even having a problem of we've reached a higher level of spirituality so so we don't have sex anymore. Maybe it was just for procreation. And he's saying, stop! Stop stopping! It's good. It's right. It's appropriate. Must fulfill his duty. Stop depriving one another. Except for, for agreement for a time. Now, there, we're not going to talk about it tonight. There are those who have the gift of singleness, but they don't have to work on how to not get a divorce, so we're not talking about them tonight. It's great if you have the gift of singleness, because you can serve more than the rest of us can and those kinds of things, but he's not talking about that here. I remember a number of years ago, after a service where I, I just, some, I don't even know what I was preaching on. I, I just mentioned this passage and in passing said something about a worldview and something about sex. And, and I remember a, a man coming to me in the parking lot afterward, tracking me down. And he said, Pat, I thought something was wrong. And he said, Pat, I, I thank you for saying what you said today. My wife has not let me touch her for years. I felt sick to my stomach. A man that I would have considered to be a godly man, married to a godly woman for all I knew. A good marriage. I just thought, man, what do I do, what do, I do with that? What do I do with this older man specifically and an older woman? What what do I do with that? Lord, what do I do? I thought if if, if he tells her, they won't be at the church very long. It's kind of my guess. And my worst fears became reality for that reason or for some other reason. Now we're at different places in life. And I'm thankful the Lord didn't give us any more detail than He did. 
But there's no way you can get around 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and conclude anything other than there has to be some sort of priority on sexual activity. There's just no way around that. He's not unclear. And and, and it's not that, that, that something from the Bible needs to change. It's something in our relationships at times need to change. But pastor, we're too busy. Too busy doing what? Going to 1,700 football games? The Bible never commands you to go to 1,700 football games. It doesn't command you to go to one. It commands you to have sex with your spouse. Yeah, but we're watching movies and doing stuff and going out and, you know, we're playing Xbox and... What? There's nothing wrong with those things. Unless those things or anything else are keeping you from having a regular physical relationship with the person you're married to. Right? I mean, uh, it it means in Greek what it means in English. Biblical sex life allows for mutual submission. Verse 4, I won't even take the time to read it, but it's kind of interesting because here we even talked this morning about roles. Well, here's a place where those roles are dropped. Mutual submission. Sex between a husband and a wife. Total equality even of roles. Another point to mention that's important, a biblical sex life does not ignore other biblical instruction. For example, this is important, please hear this. The fruit of the Spirit. It's not like all of a sudden, well, you know, your, your body's not yours. It's mine. And you become sort of, some sort of freak. <laughs> Don't do that. I'm thinking of husbands when I say freak. But it could apply to wives. Don't do that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and the list goes on, right? Don't take one and not the other. How about this, guys, specifically? First Peter, we learned this morning, to live with your wife in an understanding way. I don't know how it all balances out, but it has to. Regular sexual activity, command mode from 1 Corinthians 7, but you've got to keep it in balance with living with your wife in an understanding way. You have to keep it in balance, husbands and wives, with the fruit of the Spirit. You've got to do it all. I don't know exactly how. But that's what the Bible says. A biblical worldview calls for this to be included. And how about a final component to this? A biblical sex life seeks the glory of God. I just had to say it. I'll confess, maybe for shock value. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Sex for the glory of God. That's a good book title. Glorifying God. 
Huh. And how do we do that? We, we honor God by, by doing what He says. And, and seeing good things as coming from Him. That would glorify Him. Lord, the Lord tells us that we're to be pure. The Lord tells us that, that, that we're actually to be together. And we're not in the name of spirituality or for any other reason to, to, to somehow create a separation. And the Lord tells us this. The Lord tells us that, that, that He is good and kind. Well, let's just praise God that He's given us this kind of blessing. Everything is supposed to be for the glory of God. A biblical worldview calls for that. And again, there are abuses, and, and the abuses just are all the more tragic because we're talking about something that is good and appropriate and right, and that makes the abuses very ugly. If you want to have a good marriage, you've got to ask yourself where this is in the equation. You have to. Number 10. This one is simple, but I'm going to take a little bit different angle than perhaps you would be expecting. Love your kids slash neighbors. Maybe I should say, love your kids as neighbors. And I want to explain that. Tenth and final, biblically informed, common sense way to avoid a divorce, though I'm sure there are more. Love your kids as neighbors. We saw this morning, Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. For example, Matthew 22, I believe it is. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is, second most important command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you take care of yourself, you do things for yourself, that just comes naturally. What we're supposed to do for our neighbor is we're supposed to be helping them and meeting their needs and caring for them. We're to have their interests in mind. And Jesus is asked about this in Luke chapter 10. And when he is asked to define who a neighbor is, who does he say in effect? Anybody who has a need, right? I mean, whoever's hurting, whoever has a need, that's your neighbor. I would submit to you that your kids count as neighbors. They're more than neighbors, they're your kids. But they're not less than neighbors because they need you. In fact, they need you perhaps more than anybody else ever needs you. In one sense, they're the greatest neighbors you will ever have. Therefore, don't get a divorce because it will impact your kids for bad. Maybe I should say don't get an unbiblical divorce. But I'm assuming that's what we're talking about. It's not going to have a positive impact on your kids. It's going to have a negative impact on your kids. If you love your neighbors as you're supposed to, second greatest commandment. You're loving your kids. Don't do that to your kids. Notice this wasn't the first reason. This isn't the number one reason, but it certainly counts because it's the second greatest commandment. One of the reasons why I never want to get a divorce is because of the second greatest commandment. And its effect upon my kids. I'm accountable for that. I don't want to do that. It's not my number one reason, but it is a reason. For sure it is a reason. 
I don't know, and I, I do know, but because sin is so ugly and sin is so consuming that it does things to you you never thought could ever happen. But as I stand before you tonight, I don't know how I could tell my kids I was getting a divorce and, and leaving their mother. As of right now, standing here, I could not do that. I, just, I could not do that. But now I'm more committed to that because now I'm thinking about my kids as neighbors. Second greatest commandment from God. So the first commandment is going to motivate me. Second one is going to motivate me. I can't do this. And yet I know how ugly sin is and how consuming sin is. And before you know it, sin is consuming you and you're doing things you never thought you would do. Thus, the motivation for following through on one through nine. I know we took sort of the negative angle on these things. But you can take it from the positive as well. I want to have a great marriage. I want to have an awesome marriage. And I know that I know that I know that I know the best way to have a great marriage is to not pick up the latest men are from Mars and women are from Venus or whatever it is. A bunch of psychobabble. Those people, or whoever wrote that book, didn't invent marriage didn't create me. The wisdom of the world is fleeting. The theory is going to change next time. What's the next book going to be? I don't know. God made marriage. He has a perfect plan for it. It's a wonderful thing. So what do I want to do? Here are the spiritual disciplines of marriage. I want to excel in these so I can have a great marriage that includes so many different components so I can glorify and honor God. That's what I want to do. Right? I'm motivated. Some of you are excited because you have a great marriage. Some of you are terrified because you're not married yet and you're planning on getting married. Good. (laughs) Some of you are thinking, I'm miserable. And I don't doubt that you are. But there is always hope. There is always hope as a believer. Always, always, always. And there is a sovereign God who is to be trusted. There is also help. Though help hurts. I'll be honest, one of the reasons I really try to be godly and I, and I, and I try to have a decent marriage is because I don't want help. Because <laughs> help hurts. But if you need help, you get help. And some of you could come up here and say, I'd like to meet with anybody who would like to meet because I've had a devastating blow in life and marriage and it's ended in disaster. But I'm thankful for the grace of God who has me here today and I'm growing and learning and I'm so thankful. And we praise God together. We praise God together that He calls us to Himself and we praise and worship Him and hopefully we all pray for for those who are married in the church and those who are getting married for for His honor and glory's sake. Let's pray and and be done for tonight. Father, thank You for tonight. Thank You so much for showing us Your wisdom, showing us Your all-knowing, gracious plan for marriage. And it, it makes sense. Totally makes sense. Even though we so many times mess it up because of our selfishness and because of our sin and 
Lord, I, I'm torn emotionally. I'm excited tonight because this is great. This is great for me. It makes me have hope for my marriage. It makes me have motivation to be a more godly man. I'm thrilled about that. I'm thrilled about all of the young people who express their desire to be married. And it's so many weddings this summer that we get to be a part of and preaching the gospel at these weddings and, and helping in premarital counseling. It's just wonderful. And then emotionally on the other side, God, I'm just overwhelmed because I, I'm just, I, I know in one sense too much. I know at least something of the pains and something of the hurts and something of the sorrows. Lord, thank you that you are the God of all comfort, as it says in 2 Corinthians. And that you have given us your Holy Spirit as a helper to help us in all things. We rejoice, God, in the opportunities you give us in the future to live for Christ, to be a light, to be salt in the world that we live in. May we do these things for the sole and ultimate purpose of exalting Christ the great bridegroom. In His name we pray. Amen.